It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner, and as we kick off our three-hour tour coming up in the... uh, uh, we got a good show today coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. We're going to talk with uh, Cassidy Puckett. She's a professor at Emory University and author of a new book called Redefining Geek, Bias and the Five Hidden Habits of Tech-Savvy Teens. And in the middle of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with... Um, oh, she's... Uh, a serial entrepreneur is how she's described, Ginger Sloan, and she believes women entrepreneurs are the driving force of every stable economy globally. We're going to talk about that and a lot more with uh, Ginger Sloan coming up in just a little while. But we start out this morning talking about, um, well, we're going to talk with uh, with an MD. He's a fellow in the American College of Physicians and has uh, three decades of experience. He's uh, not he's not only worked as a primary care physician and hospitalist and and research doctor, but he um, is also an author of a new book called First Patients: The Incredible True Stories of Pioneer Patients. And uh, we're going to talk about these guinea pigs and a lot more <laughs> with with Rod Tanchenko. I think I'm saying that right. Rod, good morning and welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, really glad to be here this morning. Did I pronounce your name right, Tanchenko? You pronounced it, yes, perfectly, actually. So thank good. you. Good, because I'm usually kind of terrible with names, Rod. So. Um, <laughs> But uh, am am I am I right in referring to these first patients as guinea pigs? Uh, well, yes, you are. Uh, for the most part, uh, they they were uh, guinea pigs, except maybe for one story, which sort of a little bit uh, a little bit different. But yes, that is uh, a, a good way to describe it. Uh, what what? Are, uh, yeah. Rod, what made you think about writing this book? Did it have anything to do with the uh, with the pandemic and the and the rapid mm-hmm. development of um, vaccines and so on? Well, I started the book actually even before the pandemic. Ah, I wonder. And then it sort of, uh, you know, I locked it away. A lot of the stories in the in my drawer. I wasn't even sure if I was, if I was going to release it or kind of, uh, you know. Uh, uh, publish it, um, but y- y- in a way, you're right that the pandemic actually made me want to uh, release it um, <clears throat> because um, 
I, I think, and then added that first uh, one of the stories there about the vaccination and the first vaccine and, you know, the first guinea pigs that actually went through that. Uh, and that just uh, was an interesting story. I thought it would give it a good context through this uh, last two years that we've been all going through as a, as a human race, right? Uh, so that sort of uh, was a sort of an impetus to adding to the to the original book and also to just releasing it in general because I think it really gives uh, even the other stories just gives uh, a sort of a context on what what man has pretty much gone through with these uh, with medical innovations in general. Yeah. You know, Rod, I, I watch a lot of the a lot of the old black and white B movies and and a lot of them have a storyline where there's a mad scientist in a castle up on a hill and he kidnaps people to experiment on them. What right. in in real life when we're looking for people that are willing to try new treatments and experimental treatments. Um how, how, how do people make that decision? Are they people who are suffering and are willing to try anything to get a cure? Are they uh, just civic-minded? You know, what, what makes somebody, you know, let that mad scientist in the castle on the hill experiment on them? I'm going to make a comment about that mad scientist on the hill. <laughs> but you're, you're because it has a... Uh, Kind of interesting relevance as well but um uh, uh, to the bulk of your question there i think it, for the most part it's really desperate situation pretty much uh a lot of times patients people uh just have no choice and they have nothing else to turn to there's no other so, treatment for whatever their ailment is right Absolutely. Uh, in fact, the, the, the first story that got me into this rabbit hole <laughs> years ago, uh, and the story is that, you know, as physicians, we have to go to, you know, yearly uh, review courses and so forth just to keep up with uh, uh, medical education and so forth. So I was reading something about, you know, something in cardiology, pacemakers, and there was a little blurb about a woman who uh, begged two doctors to create the first prototype or the prototype for a uh, implantable pacemaker to save her husband who kept fainting, who was ha had a severe heart block, severe heart condition that was making him pass out and go into cardiac arrest like multiple times a day. And it was kind of a hopeless terminal condition. This was in the late 50s and that was considered a terminal condition. And But at the same time, she found out that uh, one of the leading cardiologists happened to be in the hospital. This was in Sweden, in the Karolinska Institute. And she, furthermore, she found out that they were working actually on, on pacemakers. And so when she found out, she begged, you know, this is a, so this is what I'm talking about, you know, one of those desperate situations uh, wherein she kept begging these uh, doctors and an inventor to create the first prototype. And they were very resistant because it was, they were just doing animal experiments it was too early they've never tried it on humans and you know and so that was a great story i thought and that got me interested in looking further into it and you know and fortunately that woman was still alive when i wrote the that uh, chapter and i was able to interview her and uh, her her kids who are grown up and doctors themselves and so 
And that added, you know, a whole new depth and uh, a lot of other insights into the story. But yeah, it, it's a lot. And the other stories are that way too. It's sort of a desperation. Um, and what else will you do? You just have to try this because it's the only thing we have. Um, some are altruistic, um, but that's not very common, uh, at least in these stories. Uh, one of them uh, is, uh, for example, in the early 1900s, you know, the U.S. Some U.S. Army doctors were working in Cuba to find the source of yellow fever. I was going to ask you about that yeah. because these guys ended up injecting themselves, and that's yeah. considered um, something you should never do. Well, you know, if you're injecting yourself, um, no one else can really stop you, right, uh, from doing whatever you want to your uh, body, even today. Uh, with self-experimentation, the FDA really can't go after you if you decide to try something on yourself. If you try to disseminate it or distribute something outside of yourself, uh, that's another issue, right? Um, but um, but it does have raised some ethical questions. You know, is it is it right uh, to, if it's, if you're doing it to yourself, you're not harming anyone else. Uh, what, it, what are the ethical implications of that? So, yeah, it, it does raise some of those uh, issues. Um, but these men, these, these doctors, they, um, they were trying to find, you know, the, the source of yellow fever. They didn't know that it was being brought, the virus was being carried by mosquito vectors at that time. In fact, uh, most of the medical community dismissed that idea. Uh, there was a Cuban doctor who spent decades trying to uh, prove that or trying to convince people of that, but uh, he was kind of ridiculed as well. But <clears throat> um, but to the credit of these uh, U.S. Army doctors, they kind of listened to him at, at some point and said, eh, maybe his theory has something to it. Um, so they uh, were working on it. And yes, as you mentioned, they actually uh, included themselves as uh, their own guinea pigs, and they had themselves uh, bitten by mosquitoes that they knew had uh, the yellow fever. And they did that because when they came together at that time uh, and they were going to ask for volunteers, um, and they said, we're not going to do, we're, if we're going to ask for volunteers, we're going to have it done to ourselves as well. So that was their mindset. And, uh, and the volunteers that they also had <clears throat> were, you know, um, I guess local people as well as uh, military people in the U.S. Army, uh, men in the U.S. Army who, who wanted the vote. And some of them did express that, you know, we want to help because we want to find this cure and so forth. So there were some altruistic components to what, that as well. What were they able to find, Rod, when they, when they let themselves be infected um, with the virus? Did that confirm the uh, the hypothesis that it was being carried by mosquitoes, and were they able to draw some of their own blood for the purposes of uh, creating uh, an antivirus or, or uh, a vaccine? Uh, well, yes, they. What they did, first of all, this was during the uh, early 1900s, uh, right after the Spanish-American War. Um, <clears throat> you know, handily defeated Spain. And, and so America became 
I think hesitatingly like a colonizer of some of these uh, pro uh, 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 territories in Cuba, uh, you know, the Philippines uh, and other countries. Um, <clears throat> but in, in Cuba, particularly yellow fever was really uh, bad and in the Caribbean areas, you know, with a lot of mosquitoes and so forth. And like I said, they didn't even know that that was carried by mosquitoes, the virus was. Uh, this was the time when um, the so-called germ theory of disease was sort of the uh, theory du jour at the time, right? It was relatively new, the, the concept that uh, certain diseases or specific diseases are caused by bacteria and germs. Um, so every time there's a uh, unknown disease like yellow fever, you would, maybe it's uh, something that's uh, because of uh, soiled particles of clothing, you know, because of a dirty environment uh, and so forth. So that was a theory that was called the fomite theory, which means things just touch or things that get in contact with you, uh, not so much something that gets bitten and then transmitted to an insect through you. So uh, there was a time when uh, another doctor, the sanitation officer, literally scrubbed the, the island, you know, trying to clean up everything and, you know, put in plumbing and so forth. And, and you know, it, it cleaned up the area, but it didn't really solve the uh, yellow fever uh, problem. So that prompted them to look into other theories, and they looked in, into the uh, mosquito angle. And yes, so they set up really uh, well-planned experiments of uh, uh, having mosquitoes bite known yellow fever patients. So they know, they would they call it loading. So they would load these uh, mosquitoes with that virus essentially, and then have them uh, bite the volunteers, uh, and then wait until they get you know uh, symptoms and that uh, and 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 through that process, um, they did prove that the uh, yellow fever was transmitted, that the mosquito was the vector. Now, as far as coming up with a, um, you know, a, a treatment for it, that would come much later. But the advantage that they gained by learning the vector was that they were able to institute you know, uh, mosquito control measures, essentially. Right, so uh, so they would go and uh, fumigate areas, uh, and not just cleaning and scrubbing, but fumigating areas to get rid of the mosquito havens and so forth. And that really brought down the uh, yellow fever. And and the knowledge that they gained from that was used in later, you know, shortly after, let's say, in building the Panama Canal, wherein uh, malaria and yellow fever was also a big problem. Right. And they were able to accomplish that because of what they learned uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Cuba. Rod, I've got to put a comma here. I have to take a short break. But can you stick around yeah. for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Yeah, absolutely. All right, sure. great. My guest is uh, Rod Tanchenko. He is an internist and author. The new book is First Patients, the Incredible Tur True Stories of Pioneer Patients. We're going to talk about some more of those pioneers after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do. When Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with uh, doctor and author Rod Tanchenko, who uh, has a new book called First Patients, The Incredible True Stories of Pioneer Patients. And, um, Rod, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no, no problem at all. Thank you, Tom. Um, but let's talk about how do you go about um, with the amount of experimentation that's been done throughout history, how do you determine what the landmark cases are? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think when uh, probably one that uh, almost for maybe has not been done before and really impacts treatment in a new way or uh, presents a uh, treatment that's uh, eluded, uh, you know, man uh, for a long time. So it's a new treatment. Probably this one would make it a landmark or a significant change and a significant improvement to previous treatments or previous uh, approaches to to treatment. Um, I think this would be the main criteria for... uh, uh, classifying it or labeling it as a landmark, uh, uh, you know, research. Well, I remember um, when the polio vaccine was being given out through uh, public schools and different, I, I can't remember all the ways they worked mm-hmm. on getting that out to people, but it was a big deal. Um, there were mm-hmm. press conferences and TV interviews and newspaper articles and all that kind of stuff. But then there wasn't necessarily, there wasn't that kind of media and exposure for, say, for example, the discovery of penicillin. Mm. Right. Well, and yet it was a, a real significant, you know, landmark case. Um, are, are are we tending to make these these more modern discoveries bigger than they are because uh, because of all the media exposure? Yeah, I think right. Well, with with we, with the media exposure and with a lot of information that's so available right now, I guess it's hard to compete sometimes with uh, with all of that. So that uh, information sometimes get diluted, or what once may be considered a big breakthrough may not be as big now as as uh, maybe it would have been if it happened. I don't know, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago, right? When there's uh, less to compete with, and also since there's so many ongoing innovations right now as well, that uh, which one really is a uh, you know. We hear the term game changer all the time, right? <laughs> right, right. But now it, to to meet that standard, I think it's uh, it's a little much harder, <laughs> right, to uh, come up with something that's truly a game changer uh, with all the uh, you know rapid advancement in, in technology and knowledge and, and so forth, and and the uh, really explosion of information that sometimes this. Uh, there's, there's a lot of it that uh, to filter out, uh, you know, the, the really good ones from the not so good ones, uh, maybe also very difficult. 
Um, when you mentioned penicillin, uh, you know, one of the things also, one of the angles that I was kind of looking at is to look at sort of other stories other than the, the, the famous stories that are associated with certain innovations, right? So, for example, when you mentioned penicillin, for if you if you probably Google it, you know, penicillin discovery, or most a lot of people will probably know about the you know Alexander Fleming, right? Uh, with the famous story of uh, going out on vacation one day and coming back and seeing molds on his petri dishes and right, voila, penicillin. Right. So that's pretty much a famous, well-known story. And um, <clears throat> but I was interested in the other stories <laughs> with it uh, that came actually way after that. Um, <clears throat> un- unfortunately, uh, Dr. Fleming actually couldn't isolate penicillin itself, you know, and he definitely didn't develop the antibiotic. Uh, it was the work ten years later of uh, you know a group of uh, Oxford uh, doctors weren't out to, and that's the other thing, they weren't out to change the world or uh, make a grand discovery to save, save humanity. They're just looking for substances that may have some antibiotic properties, and they wanted to see if uh, this particular one, you know, looking back into the, into the, uh, into the uh, journal articles, they found Fleming's and said, ah, let's look at this one and see maybe it has antibiotic properties, purely from a scientific question not really therapeutic or medicinal. And, but of course, it grew from that. Uh, and the story, and this was in the, during the World War II, and the story I included in my book is the first American who actually got it. And that was a pretty serendipitous, but also not just luck, but there's also a lot of hard work and uh, uh, involved with it, with people uh, getting involved and uh, setting in motion the process of mass producing this uh, drug and it kind of got its start in that uh, in that hospital in Connecticut when that woman was dying and the doctor who could make those calls to procure the single dose that was available at the time which was experimental uh, to save this woman uh, so he did that and uh, it was delivered you know from New Jersey to Connecticut, you know, five grams of penicillin, and it was uh, back then. It uh, it was a miracle overnight. Uh, the doctors, uh, the hospital staff were just amazed that uh, overnight, you know, the fevers went from 105 to normal, and she was, you know, became awake. And so, for, so, so it must have been quite a sight to to see that. Uh, so, so that that was. Uh, yeah, that was a groundbreaking. That was a uh, quote-unquote game changer. Although that particular story eventually probably made you know some news, uh, but that's not the one we remember. Uh, right, usually right. when we talk about penicillin discovery, and the significance is that yeah, there's a big impact uh, because you know this happened in 1942, middle of World War II, and um, it you know. And it went from that single dose to billions of units in a few years, and that probably saved a lot of people on the beaches of Normandy, you know, and the sure. other and the other uh, carry in the areas where uh, war in, in 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 Asia and Europe and so forth. So 
So that was uh, quite a th that was more interesting story than the actual finding of a mold in a petri dish. Uh, well, Todd, the, the the name of the book is First Patients: The Incredible True Stories yeah. of Pioneer Patients by uh, Rod Tanchenko. Um, Rod, who was the first first patient? Do you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Do you know? I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I'm yeah, but yeah. I am curious. Wow, I don't know. That's a very uh, good question, and you would think that would be in the book, right? <laughs> uh, who would that be? I mean, it would have to be the ancient times, right? Because uh, medicine goes back thousands of years uh, to the Hippocratic area, um, and even beyond that. So, but, uh, yeah, that, that's a very uh, deep question. <laughs> Who's the first patient, very first, first patient? We might go biblical here. <laughs> well, I was, of course, and, and, and that's kind of what I was getting at, is how far back do some of these uh, stories that you tell in the book go, and, and how far yeah. back did you have to research to, to find these stories? Yeah. Well, as far as my book is concerned, the first one, and I did list the uh, stories chronologically, just so it, you know, it, it goes from the oldest to the most recent one. And the oldest one here is actually that vaccine story that I think I uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, um, or the first vaccination story. And that happened in the late 18th century, uh, so 1774. Um, and fortunately, in the world of medicine, um, you can go back and look for archive medical articles and journal articles can go back hundreds of years. So, you know, there's the European journals that go far, even far back, even further than that. And with the, you know, now with the internet, sometimes you can you can find uh, some of these uh, uh, archived uh, uh, journal articles uh, that have been digitized. Fortunately, so uh, saves a trip sometimes to going uh, to uh, specialty libraries and so forth. So, unfortunately, a lot of these uh, I was able to find for that particular story. You know, some of those uh, journal articles were written at about that time, so in the 1700s. Um, and then for background material, sometimes going back even further than that, you know, going to uh, some of the translations from ancient texts and so forth uh, to, uh, to, to sort of support the story and just to give it a little bit more of a context. Yeah. You know, you were talking... Uh Rod, about the uh, the U.S. Army doctors that infected themselves yeah. with yellow fever in Cuba, and and I it got me wondering as we talk about some of these these first patients and uh, pioneer patients over the last hundred plus years. As you were writing this book, did you come across or or uh, get some sense that um, certain procedures and and policies and regulations evolved about using people in experiments you said there's not really much they can do to the doctors that expose themselves but 
right. with the the practice of trying to find <clears throat> first patients. Uh, has there been a code of conduct that has evolved over time? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's one of the uh, uh, things also that kind of the, the, the story showed, that there's a little bit of an evolution there. Um, classically, you know, when I say classically, probably, you know, before the, before the 20th century, um, it's all been just based, there's really not much patient protection uh, it's all based on purely trust that your doctor will do the right thing for you uh, and that they will follow the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm to, to, to people and they have the best interest. So it's a very uh, patriarchal, you know, paternalistic type of uh, approach for, for a long, long time, hundreds and hundreds of years. <clears throat> And it hasn't always worked out because obviously there are some nefarious or and uh, you know events of uh, really just experimentation, uh, which put people at harm without any real benefit uh, being offered. Um, that's evolved, obviously. Um, when in the uh, story about the yellow fever, the U.S. Army doctors, I think they were actually the first to offer this document called informed consent form, which is now obviously required for any clinical trial. <clears throat> and it was a one pager um, and it basically just explained as uh, an informed consent is supposed to just, you know, what, what you're getting into, you know, what, what you're trying to do and what are the, some of the risks that are, uh, that you may be exposed to. <clears throat> And also, uh, it outlined for the first time. <clears throat> excuse me. They were giving some a little bit of compensation, money, money payment to some of these volunteers. <clears throat> so that was uh, probably the earliest, uh, one of the earliest forms of informed consent that was uh, <clears throat> produced. Now, <clears throat> that actually came about because a little bit of pressure also from the from the uh, community. Because uh, there were some other doctors who were doing you know, some experiments and uh, harming uh, some of the locals, so there was some a little bit of an outcry. Uh, so in a way, they were also pressured, but it's not like they didn't want to do it anyway. Because, like I said, they were uh, also having themselves uh, bitten by the mosquitoes. So uh, I think they uh, they were very much more uh, more willing to be more transparent, I guess, and give this consent. Um, but after that, it was really slow go as far as uh, regulations were concerned. Um, there was really not much in the way of uh, patient protection uh, other than trusting that the institution or the doctors who were doing the experiments uh, were doing the right thing. <clears throat> and because most of these uh, experimentation was done on to to try new therapies to save people, I guess in a way that was sort of uh, uh, acceptable because it, it's also it's another question if you're doing experiments just for for the sake of experimentation without any any potential benefit to to uh, to a patient. So that raises well, even more. How how do you do researchers know that there's going to be a benefit? Haven't a lot of things been discovered sort of by accident? 
Uh, yes. Um, <clears throat> but when they discover something by accident, uh, usually it's not on the patient. Maybe it's on a uh, on an experiment somewhere else, not involving direct patient care, probably. And then let's apply it to uh, the patient population. So usually that's what happens. Um, <clears throat> for example, in the antibiotic, in the penicillin, uh, they see that uh, maybe it was it was an accident to see that maybe there's some anti antibacterial properties here because you see in the dish that you know there's a clear area wherein the bacteria died, and then okay that's a clue, and then you try to isolate it. Uh, that's the accident part, and then you try to isolate it, and then you do the initial uh, tests on animals, on mice, and so forth, and see if it, you can reproduce it <clears throat> um, in that area. And if you do, and then you check for toxicity as well. <clears throat> and then if everything goes well, then you take the next step into the human uh, <clears throat> into the human uh, treatments. But I think I can't. I don't think there's really a lot of if that was accidentally on uh, on uh, on a human patient that they would discover the treatments. <clears throat> you know, um, I I have in my notes that that you tell a story in the book about human to human blood transfusion, and that raised a couple mm -hmm. of questions for me. <laughs> One is, how did we go from bloodletting? <laughs> to replacing blood in people, and what other kinds of two-human blood transfusions have there ever been? <laughs> yes. Um, well, the bloodletting idea was because of this ancient uh, concept of humors. So humors are, you know, there's bad humors and good humors, uh, bile and so forth. So the idea is that uh, there's bad blood that causes disease, essentially. You know, we di they didn't know about germs. Uh, there was no germ theory. They didn't know about viruses. There was no microscopes or anything like that. So it's all just really what, what, did, what Galen, you know, the ancient doctors, thought was causing diseases. So there's the concept of humors and, uh, and having uh, diseased blood. So... To treat that, obviously, it would get rid of the bad blood. So bloodletting became the uh, the main treatment at that time. Um, <laughs> to go from that to blood transfusion, yeah, that that is actually a big a big step. Um, and initially, the the earliest ones they tr they tried to, or this doctor tried to infuse blood into uh, a patient who was, uh, had probably some psychiatric, probably schizophrenic, you know, uh, uh, patient. And the idea was maybe to infuse the blood of a docile animal, like a cow or a lamb, mm. into this, into this uh, patient. And maybe that will infuse some, you know, docility, <laughs> if that's a word, you know, make the patient cured or get the patient cured from whatever psychiatric ailment, insanity uh, that was uh, uh, afflicting that patient. Um, it didn't go very well, as you can imagine. Um, I think 
well, the first few times it seemed to go well, you know, but uh, eventually keep infusing animal blood in the, into man, which is going to cause a reaction and really fatal reactions. And that's what happened. The, the, uh, the man died. It was a big uh, deal. Uh, there's a lot of controversy with it. And it ended up being banned, the practice of transfusion. Uh, so there was a whole uh, panel uh, in France, I believe, that uh, that was the big regulator of uh, medical treatments at that time, um, <clears throat> said no more blood transfusion, it's banned. So it became a, and the title uh, of that chapter in my book is like, you know, like the, the, the forgotten, trans- the forgotten uh, uh, operation. Uh, so it became forgotten. Uh, it became taboo um, until this uh, doctor in the uh, 19th century said, "Well, he kept seeing he he kept seeing women uh, bleeding to death sometimes after childbirth. So they would have uh, post-childbirth uh, severe bleeding, hemorrhaging." And the high mortality rate from that, and they couldn't do anything. They would, you know, they would pack the uterus, uh, pack the area, give them all sorts of other remedies, uh, but obviously without blood transfusion and with continued bleeding, a lot of these women died. And this was a very, very progressive doctor, uh, Dr. Blundell, who, who said, and one of the things that he was really against was that ideas that are very old, but they're very unproven, you know, and scientifically was just not verified. So he was heavy into evidence-based medicine, <laughs> hundreds of years before evidence-based medicine uh, was a thing, you know, became uh, 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 what we go by. Well, my guest is oh. Dr. Rod Tanchenko, and the book is First Patients, The Incredible Two True Stories of Pioneer Patients. Rod, we've got to wrap it up here in a minute, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? Sure. It's uh, uh, first-patients.com. So that's the actual website of the book. Um, You know, and I'm on Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, so all those things. Well, thank you for spending this time with uh, me and the listeners this morning and and for sharing uh, some of these great stories, and um, not just with us, but in the book as well. Um, And keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me, Tom. All right. It was a pleasure. Take care. And with that, we're going to take a short break. If you're listening to us on WFOV uh, LP, our Voices Radio, 92.1 FM in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Hearing. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. There's lots more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead, and we hope that you'll uh, stay with us for it. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. 
Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Quiplet Technology, My Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology.
this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The doctor was looking at the x-ray and I asked him, what do you see? And he kept on looking at the x-ray as he said in French to me, I see bones, I see gizzards and bones, and a few kidney stones. Among the lovely bones I see hips And fourteen paper clips Three asparagus tips Among the lovely bones I see things in your peritoneum That belong in the British Museum. I see your spine, and your spine looks divine. It's exactly like mine. Now, doesn't that seem strange? And in case you use pay telephones, there's two dollars in change among your lovely bones. X-ray. It's really remarkable. Isn't the lumbar vertebrae supposed to be connected to the clavicle? Well, I know, but it's got tape. Hey, look what's in there. Look at that. It's a stamp. It's a 1922 McKinley Ultramarine Blue with imperfect perforations. I've got to get that out and put it in my collection. Look in there, there's printing. What does it say in there? U.S. certified grade A. Look at this, it's fascinating. See those little round things? You know what those are? Those are M&Ms. Those people are right, they don't melt. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Two, 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 two
got to be, got to be, got to be, just, just gotta be you. What a difference. Program, don't you know? Go on, go on, get out of here. <laughs> 